So what that means is that if you remind people of their mortality, you tend to indirectly also remind them or make it known that their cultural worldviews have, to some extent, failed to protect them <laughs> from what they were set up to do. So they found that if you remind people of their mortality, you threaten their worldviews, so you might find that people are more derogatory to an outgroup. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and for the society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. First of all, I would like to thank our listeners. You've been sticking around with us for two, at least two episodes so far. <laughs> and this is our third episode on death. We'll be dissecting the topic of death. And we have a guest today, our first guest ever, Laura Blackie from the University of Nottingham. She's an assistant professor of psychology there. Hi, Laura. How uh, are you? Hi, Ugo. Yes, thank you very much for welcoming on to my podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us today. So we will be talking about the topic of death, and we hope that, uh, <laughs> well, it's kind of an odd topic to start off and have a guest, but uh, we hope that you can help us understand some of the puzzles that uh, Charles and I have discovered uh, in this uh, realm. Now, Charles, before we continue into dissecting the topic of death mm -hmm. and the science of <laughs> the science of dying, I don't know what it would be. Yeah. Maybe we should introduce our listeners to this topic in a more colloquial way. What do you think? Yeah, it sounds good. I mean, I was when you said the science of dying, I was is there a word for the science of dying? That would be kind of a good word to know. That would, we should have probably looked that up beforehand. Does any any either of you know science of dying a word? Um, I don't know. Yeah, they do call it the science of death and dying in the medical field. Right. Um, so not particularly eloquent, but no. Okay, they could we could come up with one maybe today. Martology. Yeah, that sounds good. I was worried when we decided to do this episode, I was worried and sharing my concern with Igor that it's a bit off-putting because death is its a really strange one, isn't it? Because obviously it's going to happen to everyone, yet we just don't really like to talk about it. And I think kind of what we're going to be getting into today is a bit, well, firstly, maybe why we don't talk about it, what's going on there, and are we right to just ignore it? Are there, I mean, we can imagine there's probably some negative aspects, but maybe even some positive aspects of dying. But I just wanted to ask Igor firstly, Igor, you're going to die, hopefully not live on air. That would be, I don't know, put rating through the roof. <laughs> but um, do you think about death much in a, I don't know, I don't, you're already saying that it sounds like I'm being morbid, which maybe we can get into that. But do you think about your own death? Uh, surely all the time, actually, but um, not maybe not in the way how we, as we will discuss, sort of like, uh, I, I don't necessarily have a, a fear of dying, but the idea uh, that we are uh, here only for a limited period of time is something that is on my mind. Actually, uh, I don't know if I ever told you, but about a year ago, <laughs> after I was, I was just coming back from Mexico, where I was jogging on the beach, just, you know, like, with, without wearing a shirt. And then I go to see a dermatologist, and he's like, oh, interesting, I think we need to remove the small. Ooh. And they, so they removed them all, you know, like how they do it right away. I mean, they, they were like, oh, yeah, this ball, remove now. Yeah. Lay down, lay down, yeah. now. <laughs> and then the next thing is uh, that I'm waiting for the results. And uh, she calls me back, like, hmm, we actually don't know if you have a melanoma. Uh, how about you come back and we'll remove another centimeter? And like, right. are you sure you need one centimeter? Well, anyways, long story short, uh, from the time... It was removed, and I was all clear at the end, but it took about half a year until they figured it out. For whatever reason, the medical, uh, the lab results took a while. And so that in that time, I was thinking, well, what if I have cancer? Mm. And uh, what, what, what would happen if I only have, let's say, five years more to live? And uh, so those type of thoughts were in my mind. They, they were not much in my mind before that, but mm. hey, maybe I'm also getting older. Yeah, right. So bottom line is, thinking of death is certainly on my mind, or was on my mind before. And it does change you, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing is what kind of impact it might have on you but what about you laura now this is probably through your work you tend to think about it quite a lot but personally do you um 
contemplate your own mortality on a regular basis <laughs> yeah i'm gonna sound even weirder now <laughs> to um <laughs> to the people that know what i study right. um, and that was possibly one of the reasons i was drawn to studying how we make sense of our own mortality in the first place but i've always just been fascinated with it and not because i've had any experience or or well conscious experience that i link to that thinking about death but I've always just been kind of fascinated with the idea that we know it's coming mm. and we don't know when it's going to happen um, or, you know, in, in what context, whether we'll be old or young or what we will have achieved at that point in our lives. So I guess perhaps, you know, phrasing myself as a control enthusiast, mm -hmm. perhaps <laughs> I've always been <laughs> kind of... Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I've always been quite fascinated with it in that capacity. Like, it's the one thing mm. that it's the kind of the only reality that we come into the world knowing, mm. and it's the only thing we can't really control at mm. sort of you know a broader level. I mean, obviously we can eat right, we can keep fit, but beyond that, you know, sometimes when walking home, I think, oh, you know, what if I'm just listening to this wonderful podcast mm -hmm. and just step out and, you know, that's it, you know, what would that mean? And what would people say? And ironically, what have you achieved to that point? So sometimes I have the rather morbid thought like, oh, life's been pretty good now. You know, mm -hmm. you could tell a pretty good story, but like, what about in five years time, 10 yeah. years time? Yeah. Oh, maybe not. Yeah. I, I <laughs> maybe suppose. it would be better to go now. It's a better story. <laughs> yeah, cash my chips in as I'm, whilst things are yeah. going well. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, everyone I'm sure has considered at some point, and this might reflect badly on me and I might end up looking stupid, but who's going to be at your funeral, you know, or just picturing that scene it's going to be a packed house or, you know, everyone's going to be saying, oh, why didn't I spend more time with him while I had the chance? Um, so I think we've all perhaps thought about that kind of thing. I don't know. Am I wrong? <laughs> Have either of you thought of that? No. I definitely haven't thought about my funeral. No? I'm sorry. If, no, oh. somehow I, I, I was thinking, well, but, you know, like, okay, if I'm dying in the next few years, what can I, what can I leave behind? Right. Okay, so like, well, I don't really have uh, want to have babies right now. Okay, right. so let's check that off. I mean, it's also unfair, you know. Like, uh, honey, let's have a child. <laughs> By the way, I'm dying, <laughs> uh, so that doesn't work. Well, it's like maybe I should write some kind of a book or uh -huh. create something amazing that uh, generations to come would care about. Of course, it's a very silly idea because you know nobody cares. So like, even 20 years from now, nobody would even remember the, the research that somebody named Grossman would have done. But uh, that's sort of like the type of thoughts that went yeah. through my head but definitely not people from a funeral no no i didn't even think of i actually it's really interesting i did not <laughs> think of the of the fact that i'm dying i mean maybe because my experience with funerals has been well not most pleasant one so far okay fair enough yeah laura help yeah. me out here is it just me no, it's, maybe it's just a British thing. Right, British maybe thing. we're just morbid and pessimistic. Yeah. But, but that, that's kind I of thought of that. I wanted to talk about that aspect. We use the word morbid, don't we? Sort of, it's, it's a kind of a negative word, and it's peculiar that the sort of default position is to not talk about it. So, I mean, because we, we, we're going to get into later about what the possible positive or negative aspects of perhaps thinking about it a little more but i'm just kind of interested before we get into that as why why is it like why is it like that why don't we want to talk about it oh shall i jump in and try and take this one um yeah. well i think that's a really obviously big and complicated mm. question um and i mean the leading kind of theory um, in the field, terror management theory, has its own perspective on this, which has kind of Freudian roots, which is just the idea that it's just so psychologically frightening for us to think about the fact that we won't exist and that we can't control it, that we do everything in our power to avoid thinking about that. We've even created these cultural structures to try and remove ourselves from that. So, you know, death is removed from hospitals to a certain extent in the way we care for kind of ill or frail terminal patients at the moment. But I was also, I was talking to a colleague um, recently, and it's always, I think, helpful to talk to a colleague who like is deeply skeptical about your work um i mean it's not great for like when you think about terms of legacy and <laughs> and other respects but it's a useful process i think because he he just doesn't buy into this idea this terror management idea of it being you know he 
acknowledges that it's, you know, scary and difficult, but he also thinks that it might just be that society has changed. So technology has advanced so much, you know, medicine has come so far that we are now just living longer and better lives. And so statistically, it's just less likely. We don't see it as much. If you were in like medieval Britain, you know, you would losing a child was fairly commonplace. Um, I think it will be like two out of four, Mm. one out of four children in that era would die. So I think he's arguing that it's just removed from consciousness because it's just unlikely we're in an aging population and so we're not confronted with it in the same way that we once were. That makes it sound like it's, we just kind of, it's a passive thing. We just get distracted by other, by the busyness of our day-to-day life. I, my kind of suspicion perhaps is that, I don't know, it feels more like we're trying to not think about it. I don't have anything to base that on, but it feels more like um, that we're actively avoiding it. Like look, we're it's looking it out of the corner of our eye and we don't want to contemplate it directly. But I, I'd sort of, I'd, I'd take that point, you know, death is much less present in our day-to-day lives. Although we are reminded a lot of death through, I mean, papers are sold through fascination with death to a certain extent. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not saying I entirely agree with him. Mm. It was a different perspective. I hadn't thought about it in Mm. that way um, before. But I I do think that there's something, and he would admit this too, that's unpleasant about thinking about death because it is unknown and it is difficult. So I think for that reason, even though we're not confronted with it, when we are reminded of it, it's unpleasant. We don't want to think about it. So we tend to, you know, find ways to avoid it and distract ourselves from it even if it's statistically unlikely for Mm. us, you Mm. know, in our young age to experience it. But I think the other thing that you guys have been talking about is it's the issue of control. And I think we'll get to that also at some point. It's like, like we can control so many things or we feel like we can control so many things in our lives these days. And death is one thing that you can't really control. So it's like, well, you know, we can fly to the moon Hmm. and we have airplanes which may crash. Uh, we have cars that may crash and and so on and so forth like we have all these devices you know we can uh, we have nuclear power that can annihilate the whole world in a split of a second and yet we cannot control death we can, we're trying so hard and we can't control death and i think that's a kind of like to ma- for many people a scary thought that we humans are actually not that special that we cannot really mm-hmm. put ourselves on the pedestal because this ultimate thing time we cannot control it mm-hmm. But actually, it's really interesting. I think there are individual differences. So, Charles, you sent me this online death clock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you send it to Laura, too? So let's yeah. talk did, about that. Yeah. <laughs> because it's ridiculous. So here's what happened. So so online death clock, uh, there are various forms of it, probably. It's basically, let's say, there's a website you can go, you can put in your age, uh, gender, if you smoke, how much you drink, if you drink... Uh, uh, if you are from a particular country, and then uh, for whatever reason, if you're optimistic or pessimistic, and and so, and then uh, it turns out that I would live much, uh, I would have much shorter lifespan than uh, Charles. Obviously, I'm now much more critical of the online. That's what I was going to say. That's that. why you're not putting any weight into this because it means you're going to die. <laughs> that, uh, I understand. No, that. no, but no, no, that's right. But hey, you know, if I live until I'm 78 instead of just for the next half a year, hey, totally fine. You'll by take me. that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take that. But here's an interesting thing. So I asked my wife if she wants to know when she dies. And she's like, hell no. <laughs> and, and then, you know, I do research on self, other differences, right? Like, it's like, now, would you want to know when I die? And she's like, no, but mm, actually... Yeah, well, maybe I want to know who, who would live longer. <laughs> oh, so I put that in, and then we, uh, that, that we uh, were able to compare. Of course, statistically, w- uh, women live longer, so she was like over 90, according to this death wow. So she would be like... Uh, she must be was really also optimistic. <laughs> uh, well, she was optimistic. Yeah, right. Like, what's the, why is that all about optimism? Gives you extra 10 years. Well, also being a woman, which is, uh, you know, it's all statistical, right? Like, probabilistically, based on statistics, this is the average life expectancy for somebody from this country uh, who doesn't drink much or uh, doesn't drink at all, doesn't smoke, and so on, has a good BMI, mm-hmm. uh, body mass index. Uh, but but it was interesting her, her reaction that because what she said well this is really sad because if this is true 
I would live 50 years longer than you and I would be without you. Mm. And I don't want that. Oh. And uh, that's a, and that's I mean so one of the reasons why she possibly didn't even want to know. And well, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if you guys uh, had similar experience, but there's certainly individual difference. I found this interesting because I was like, oh, I totally want to know when I'm dying, yeah. and she's like, hell no, I don't want to know when I'm dying. I'm like, don't even remind me of that. <laughs> well, when I sent the uh, link to Laura this morning, I said Igor and I did it, so it might be interesting to see what you um, how you how it goes. But I also said, look, hey, I completely understand if you don't want to do it because I'm not surprised if some people don't want a, a date on their death even though we know it's you know flawed etc but laura do you do you find people i mean if you're probably working in an area talking about death the death clocks must come up all the time do, do friends and family kind of shy away from that kind of thing when you bring them up yeah so you tend to either get two reactions when you say what you study um and i think i prefer the first one so the first <laughs> one is people kind of go oh that's really weird why do you want to study that and oh, let's not talk about it and change the subject. Um, but occasionally you get... That's the, the reaction you prefer? Yeah, because okay. <laughs> the alternative is that you get the odd few people that kind of get really taken with the idea. Um. And then the conversation can kind of take a weird... You know, it's not, it's moving past an intellectual conversation at some mm. point into like weird experiences and feelings. Mm. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm really the right person yeah. Yeah. for this to be <laughs> kind of discussed with. Yeah. You know, I really just consider the concept of death rather like intellectually. And I often wonder, you know, I think it can be a great motivator because it reminds us that we're not in control of everything and it reminds us that time is limited mm. so i think it can be a really good sort of recalibration of our identity and goals and what we want to achieve but even though i study this and this is what, kind of what i do on a sort of you know day-to-day -day basis for a job i i often wonder like how much i take notice of that even though i'm thinking about my mortality mm. a lot am i am i making those you know changes that i need to make or mm. am i you know, perhaps being driven by habit because habit is extremely kind of persuasive um, mm -hmm. and difficult to change. So, yeah, I often think about it in those sort of terms, like, oh, this is what my research would say. Am I actually doing this? Or, yeah. Yeah. you know, am I writing about something but actually living in a way that is kind of inconsistent with that? Well, and but, you, yeah, I did do the deaf clock, I have to say. How did you get on? Not as well as Igor's wife, as it turns out. So <laughs> that's probably not good if we put in the statistics. It's probably the difference between Canada and uh, England. Well, yeah, that and, you know, BMI and all kinds of horrible things that I had to confront this morning. I thought, mm, do I want to do this? And this is the day to do it, you know, where I've like not had a healthy breakfast at home yeah. and I'm sitting here with my pastry and it's asking for my BMI. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'll be 78, which I think is a, is a, a nice, not too young, but <laughs> age to go. So I wasn't too, I wasn't too upset actually about that. But, um, yeah, I think I said to you over email, right? I will be able to like ring in, I'll see Christmas right. of the year and then I'll die before the new year rings in. That's very precise. Actually, you, I think it was the 29th of December. That's yeah. my, my wedding anniversary. So, oh, you know, okay. that's well, you something, you know, nice good day for some, yeah, not, exactly, some yeah. <laughs> not so for Swings others. <laughs> Last time we spoke, Charles, uh, we, uh, initially, by the way, Laura, we were planning to talk about death and aging and wisdom all in one episode. And then we started sort of planning it out and mapping out what do we want to talk about. Turns out like, this is way too much for one episode. So we had to break it up into aging and death as two separate things. But of course, there is a connection. And as we mentioned at the end of the last episode, where we talked about aging and the relationship between aging and wisdom, that there are some theoretical positions that suggest that when you get older, you start thinking differently about your relationships and have a different attitude towards life, in part because you're reminded of the fact that you don't have that much time left. And sort of that affects your motivations and your priorities and how you think about past events, your memories and uh, your relationships to others. And the most common theoretical framework there that comes from Stanford University Laura Carstensen's work, as, as well as her colleagues, is the socio-emotional selectivity theory. So basically, socio-emotionally select what you want to focus on as you sort of 
approach the limiting time horizons and uh, sort of because of that uh, you focus on closer relationships that are more meaningful to you and less on more peripheral relationships whereas maybe early in your life uh, you're more likely to just explore different relationships different activities and so on and so forth and then maybe that's not what you would want to do because you start valuing your time more so support for it comes mostly from cross-sectional studies comparing people of different age groups and examining how they differ in their attitudes, in their relationship structure. And as we talked last week, that has a whole range of problems because you just also compare different cultures, people born and grew up in different cultural environments. But there is also at least one study that compared longitudinally, I think, uh, nuns over time. Mm-hmm where there were reports or or measures, questionnaire measures on those nuns from earlier on, and then they collected them later. And they indeed saw some shifts as uh, younger nuns became older nuns. Of course, nuns is a very interesting sample, very specific sample. may not necessarily (laughs) generalize to the general population uh, in North America. So that's the socio-emotional selectivity theory. And it, of course, like it's of, to some extent, uh, makes a very bold claim that there is something very general. It's not just culture-specific. And I've been always wondering, to what extent is this true? And uh, would you find same effects, for instance, in, uh, in cultures which may have different attitudes towards age, uh, aging and towards uh, the topic of death? Do we know anything about that, about in different cultures, whether this plays out or you're saying they're claiming that it is cross-cultural? Yeah, and I think that's the same, This well, a similar case um, in the sort of terror management mortality salience literature in the sense that most of the work has tested European samples. So um, there's a lot of research. Most of the research is done in North America, but then there are, you know, it is taking place in the UK, Germany, um, other sort of European Western countries. There's been a few kind of um, research studies that have looked at it in, again, that very arbitrary East Asian context. Um, And I, and sort of broadly what they find is that people don't necessarily respond to reminders of death in the same way. So they found that these individuals weren't, um, East Asian individuals weren't as defensive in terms of like worldview defense. They weren't as quick to derogate another person um, as people in North American cultures. And they argued that that was partly because of the way identity is different across these two cultures. So in East Asian cultures, you're part of more of a collective and because you have to you know, monitor your behavior in relation to others, you're more sensitive to situational factors, which is kind of not apparently what we do in the West. We're a lot more of a kind of individual agent. And so we're more focused on our own behavior and we are less, you know, concerned about sort of situational explanations or constraints. So what that paper showed was that the way that we measure responses to mortality don't typically have the same findings. They don't, you know, people, the East Asians were less defensive. But they also wrote in the paper, and this is probably very true, that these aren't culturally sensitive and developed manipulations for that population of study. So maybe if you threaten or remind individuals of mortality in a different way that threatens a collective identity maybe you would Mm. see defensive responses there they just perhaps wouldn't take the same form Mm. that we have been writing about and researching for the last 20 years laura i think you've led us beautifully into we need to zoom out and talk about the fantastically named terror management theory (laughs) we've we've kind of been mentioning it in passing and people are probably going tell me what that sounds cool and that will probably make a bit more uh, sense of some of the differences how in different cultures. Um, so basically, from my understanding, if you remind people of their death, they have quite predictable responses. I mean, that's a loose way of explaining it. Could you kind of maybe tell us a little bit about when people are, are reminded of, of their own mortality? What are these kind of typical ways that, that people have been shown to respond? Yeah, so the basic premise of that particular theory, a terror management theory, is that 
our kind of cultural context has really been what they would argue set up to help us kind of repress the fear of death. So they argue that this kind of innate drive that we have for self-preservation along with the awareness that we have that death is coming at some point, we just don't know when or where, mm. um, really creates a kind of a terror that we couldn't function in society with. So we've created over time these cultural systems that allow us to kind of remove that anxiety and function in day-to-day life. So it has a very kind of, like I said, Freudian kind of um, roots to it. But what they argue is that we've set up cultural worldviews, so things that are valued in society, beliefs, attitudes. These all give us a sense of what it means to be a meaningful individual in that society and that allows us to potentially live up to those standards in a a way that would leave a legacy, either literal or symbolic Mm. through a great work of art, Mm. that would allow us to transcend the sort of the physical side of death that we can't escape. So what that means is that if you remind people of their mortality, you tend to indirectly also remind them or make it known that their cultural worldviews have to some extent failed to protect them (laughs) from what they were set up to do. So they found that if you remind people of their mortality, you've threatened their worldviews, so you might find that people are more derogatory to an out-group, to an in-group, because they hold different beliefs, so that's threatening. So I have a question about that. Why is it that instead of uh, after this reminder of death, I'm just like sitting down and try to write down a poem or a novel or make a movie or, you know, post some cute Instagram pictures of cute puppies or whatever that everybody... I've seen, a, I've seen your post, Eagle. Very cute. Uh, like Instagram? I don't have an Instagram account. <laughs> That's pretty much the only thing I probably don't have. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but why, instead of that, uh, you start uh, being threatened about your worldview? Um, uh, so what is it in this theory that leads you on this path instead of the path of, you know, uh, generating uh, uh, something to pass on? Yeah, so the effects have been from this theory have actually been quite broad. So there are different ways in which you can defend against death. And some theories, you know, some experiments have been very much set up to do what you've just mentioned, give you an outlet to allow you to suppress and avoid that reality by kind of affirming that you're in good health and therefore dismissing any evidence to the contrary that um, you might, you know, later die. But what they argue, and again, it's because it has this these kind of Freudian roots that go back to mm-hmm. Ernest Becker and Otto Rank, who really helped kind of shape this theory, is that once you've kind of removed the immediate thoughts of death, it remains and lingers in your consciousness, even though you're not aware of it. And so because that, you know, these thoughts are still having an impact on your consciousness, you feel the need to defend your worldviews if you're feeling threatened by somebody different from you. Or, and it doesn't, and they've much broader effects than necessarily just, you know, being derogatory to other people. It could also be things like that affirm your own self worth. So they've had um, earlier effects showing that people drive faster after a mortality salience manipulation. Yeah, Yeah, weird. As only if. Contraproductive, too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Really stupid. But only if driving is part of your, like, self-esteem that you are you know a good functional individual if you don't really care about driving ability then you don't see those effects so so does that mean something that you value in yourself you'll try and sort of reassure yourself that it you are good at that yeah so once you've kind of removed the immediate kind of thought by looking at cute puppies or thinking well i'm in good health this doesn't apply to me they argue that there's this kind of lingering doubt in your consciousness that you then need to affirm yourself as a person of worth in a society of worth you know one thing that occurred to me when i was because you thanks for you sent some papers through and i was having a look through them trying to get you know get a sense of this well this thought kept on emerging coming back to my mind which was it seemed like the theory seems to pull the rug out from anyone who tries to do something long lasting and good. You can almost kind of cynically say, Oh, well, you're, you know, you're setting up this charity that's going to help people or save the planet. Say you're being environmentally friendly because 
you know, um, it's not that you're doing good. It's that you're trying to reassure, you know, reaffirm your cultural values. And it sounds, does that sound a little bit unfair? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, I would say no, <laughs> based on my own research program, yeah. but there are many that would disagree with me on that, on that point. But I think, and I've got a quote at some point in my, in my thesis about this was that it is at its core, like you said, a defensive theory. It's all about, it comes from that Freudian perspective. So it's all about kind of, you know, we're scared of or driven to avoid these, um, you know, in this case, this reminder of mortality. So we've built all these mechanisms and responses that allow us to do that and I think the theory it's tried in recent years but it's it's harder for them when your core is that defensive core to talk about growth and expansion and that's not to say that it can't have positive effects so they have shown after MS people become become more pro-social or they are more creative but they tend to be sort of nuanced effects where they become more pro-social because they're told that you know society really values people that give to charities or mm. creating this piece of work will help contribute to society um so the effects there are kind of nuanced and that's one thing that's remains kind of a question for me with terror management theory is like given that its roots are in that kind of Freudian history how can we how can we think beyond that and think about growth and development and and like you said the more positive aspects of life yeah because terror management theory but it sounds like it's saying this is why we don't think about death okay because it leads to everyone behaving really badly so let's not encourage people to think about death there's nothing good about it no good shall come of this um so it would be interesting to look at perhaps other ways that people can be reminded of their death and that could lead to different outcomes and this is kind of where your more recent work is is kind of been looking at yeah so my work looks at a manipulation called death reflection and it's different from mortality salience because it tries to put death in a specific context so the mortality salience manipulation just asks what are your thoughts and feelings about death and what will happen to you when you physically die and once you're physically dead so these are quite big abstract broad questions whereas the death reflection manipulation is kind of a quite vivid scenario actually where you imagine you're you're visiting a friend and you're staying in their apartment on the 20th floor and there's a fire at night and it goes through the, it really does go through the psychological struggle that you have to get out but you know you, you can't get out and that's you sort of eventually have to resign yourself to this is you know how you're going to die I, i've got the death reflection and the questions here and i'd vaguely thought about sharing them with the uh, listeners, but would that throw out future studies if people had? had <laughs> so I, I can. I'd quite like to read it because it's really you know we've been speaking in a sort of quite academic way about this, but it'd be quite interesting for people to have that experience of the death reflection with the questions. But I would totally not do it if it's no. Read probably, them out. Read them. Yeah? Out. <laughs> so get comfortable, sit down, and. Um, Imagine you are visiting a friend who lives on the 20th floor of an old downtown apartment building. It's the middle of the night when you are suddenly awakened from a deep sleep by the sound of screams and the choking smell of smoke. You reach over to the nightstand and turn on the light. You are shocked to find the room filling fast with thick clouds of smoke. You run to the door and reach for the handle. You pull back in pain as the intense heat of the knob scalds you violently. Grabbing a blanket off the bed and using it as protectors, you manage to turn the handle and open the door. Almost immediately, a huge wave of flame and smoke roars into the room, knocking you back and literally off your feet. There is no way to leave the room. It is getting very hard to breathe and the heat from the flames is almost unbearable. Panicked, you scramble to the only window in the room and try to open it. As you struggle, you realise the old window is virtually painted shut all around the edges. It doesn't budge. Your eyes are barely open now, filled with tears from the smoke. You try calling out for help, but the air to form the words is not there. You drop to the floor, hoping to escape the rising smoke, but it is too late. The room is filled top to bottom with thick fumes and nearly entirely in flames. With your heart pounding, it suddenly hits you, as time seems to stand still that you are literally moments away from dying. 
the inevitable unknown that was always waiting for you has finally arrived. Out of breath and weak, you shut your eyes and wait for the end. Then, there are four questions. Please describe in detail the thoughts and emotions you felt while imagining the scenario. Number two. If you did experience this event, how do you think you would handle the final moments? Thirdly. Again, imagining it did happen to you, describe the life you led up to that point. And fourthly, how do you feel your family would react if it did happen to you? Mm. So the focus is like, so you you know you're dying, right? Like it's like, like in, in terror management, you kind of like uh, mortality salience. There is not sure if you're dying, maybe you're dying, are you dying? But here you kind of are dying, right? Yeah, so I think mortality saint still reminds you that you are going to die. So before in our work... We, but there's an uncertainty. Yeah, but we've made a distinction between this abstract and specific one. I think the DR has mm-hmm. a... a finality to it that mortality salience doesn't but in very recently i've started to think about death reflection more in terms of the questions that we ask afterwards and i think it's really that we have a couple of extra questions that ask about your life that you led up until that point and how your family would react to that kind of that funeral question almost Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and i think that just makes the the concept of death broader actually. So I think it makes it broader than what's going to happen to you. Um, and it brings in, you know, how have I lived my life? How will my family and the people around me react? And I think that kind of broadening of the self, which links to your own work, um, ego and wisdom, is is really, I mean, I haven't managed to pin this down empirically yet. And I'm still figuring out ways to test it because you're dealing with quite still quite broad abstract terms but i think it really is the key between what mortality salience is doing which is i kind of think about it as a sort of knee-jerk reaction it's a bit like hey you're gonna die sometime you know Mm. and it's like oh that's unpleasant let me try and repress that and make myself feel better versus you know look imagine that this real actual scenario which is very vivid Mm. (laughs) happened to you and it happened to you right now you know what what would that change? And bear in mind, we are mostly serving healthy undergraduate students mm. who are quite far off their own death, like in all likelihood, and have so far led lives that they're relatively happy with. Then you tend to get these responses where people are like, you know, that allow growth and expansion. So we've observed that mm-hmm. people are more pro-social and they're more pro-social regardless of whether you tell them there's an expectation that they should be. There's no difference. They're equally likely to be pro-social and they're more pro-social than people in a mortality salience condition who are only pro-social when you give them that expectation of like, hey, you'll feel good if you do this. So from what I hear, uh, like, sorry, Charles, let me just quickly interject. What I hear is like at least three different explanations for yeah. what may be driving. Hence why I figured it out, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that, that's uh, it's fascinating uh, because uh, there's a lot more work that can be done. It seems to me that uh, one of them is about uh, this uh, uh, part that you have in the uh, near-death uh, uh, manipulations or like uh, reflections that you're doing, um, which is focusing specifically on reflection and life review afterwards, which is uh, not present in the mortality salience manipulation. You are not asked to reflect what would that mean if you die for your family and so on and so forth, and you're not passing your life review. And I think that may by itself, of course, lead to an effect. But there are at least two others, and um, I really don't know what to think about those. So uh, maybe you guys uh, can help me with that. One of them is this general uh, sense of uncertainty that seems to be much more heightened in terror management literature and mortality salience type of manipulations as compared to this fairly concrete experience. Okay, now imagine you're dying, your body's passing away. Now think about what would happen afterwards. So it's like there's kind of like a finality, as you said, uh, to it. Whereas in mortality salience, you don't have necessarily that. It's much like you became aware of the possibility that you may die. 
And it's like, what if? And that, like, that uncertainty maybe by itself could produce effects. And there are some studies that may suggest that even without a mortality component, just any type of uncertainty leads to this type of derogation, negative, antithetical to wisdom type of effects. But there's another thing that seems to be suggested again and again in the literature. For instance, this paper by uh, Casalino in PSBB in this personality social psychology journal, Greed, Death, and Values, uh, that seems to suggest that there is something about abstractness versus concreteness. And again, you alluded to that, that like near-death experience is much more concrete versus the terror management type of manipulations, uh, mortality cells manipulations are much more abstract. But I wonder if that is really the case. So this last part, I'm not so sure about. The other two make perfect sense to me. Yes, you have the piece about life review in near-death experiences. You don't have that part in mortality cells. Yes, one of them is much more definitive in terms of you're dying and now move on of what happens afterwards. The other one is not, not sure. There's a great deal of uncertainty. But the abstractness doesn't make much sense to me. Because on the one hand, I do see the near-death experiences as, abst- as very concrete. You're focusing on yourself. But then they're also more abstract because you're focusing on what happens afterwards and what are the implications for others. Mm-hmm. And that leads, uh, again, sort of to this kind of self-expansion, which is by itself an abstract process. And then there are also this work on self-affirmation. Which, uh, uh, which, well, samples are very small, so I want to see that work replicated at least five more times before I can really believe it. But uh, let's take it as a temporary given. If that work is right, what it suggests is that if you affirm your values, then this mortality salience effects, the negative effects of mortality salience, are attenuated. And what that means to me is that if you make yourself think about yourself in a more abstract way, because that's what self-affirmation in a sense does. It does not just affirm your concrete sense of self, but it like makes you think about yourself in bigger picture terms, that then this manipulation uh, does not work, which goes against the idea that mortality salience is more abstract than near-death experience. So for me, there is a sort of a that last piece about abstractness is kind of still a pickle. I still don't understand it. Yeah, I would agree that that's a very obvious difference between the MS um, and death reflection or the mortality salience and the death reflection manipulations. But like you said, I you know I think that was in some of the original writings um, and was never tested experimentally per se. But I... Yeah, and I have trouble now thinking about though about that as a, as an explanation for the reasons that you've said. So I started to look more closely at the questions that the death reflection manipulation has, and go back to the original design and and why those questions were added. And it was argued that those questions would expand the self concept. So, like you said, it then gets us into tricky water about like if you're thinking about your self concept in a broader domain, then you're actually thinking in more abstract terms, at least in what self-construal theory would argue, which is counter to what is argued in the original papers of death reflection. Right. So I'm I'm less wedded to that as an alternative. I think it's a very obvious difference between the two scenarios in the sense that one has, um, you know, like you said, a specific ending with no uncertainty and one does not but I think it's more to do with the other two possibilities that you've mentioned which reminded me I was trying to remind myself what the name of these researchers were they were a group in Germany and they did some research quite a while ago now and they came up with these different scenarios of basically mortality awareness um, but they modified how much control the participants had Mm-hmm. And they found that when you modified the control and you allowed participants to determine for themselves when they died mm-hmm. by taking a pill because they were terminally ill, you actually saw a lot less defensive responding. So I... Um, that's I, I'm, that's I'm, really I'm, interesting, isn't it? It kind of brings up questions about uh, euthanasia. Yeah, <laughs> which is another really big topic, yeah. isn't it? About, you know, um, but I'm not wedded to the, you know, to the premise that this is the the mechanism is uniquely about mortality and death 
Um, I think mm-hmm. uncertainty, yeah. I think control, I think all of that come in. I just think that death might be a really good example of where we have to confront it in a sort of final way. You know, if you're going to do an exam, but you feel a bit uncertain about how you do and what that might mean for your future, that doesn't have the same, I don't know, significance perhaps as confronting those issues in something in relation to, you know, to death. But I'm not as wedded as terror management theorists are to it being the explanation Mm. for social behaviour. I was interested in one of the links is specifically how do these how do these uh, manipulations lead to things that might look like wisdom? And I remember you saying, Laura, something to do with people tend to integrate different different kinds of values as a result of this death reflection. So they they tend to be not, you know, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this refers to a paper that I had um, published in PLUS One a couple of years ago where we found, and this did include the mortality salience um, condition and the death reflection condition, and we found across three different studies, but I'll just take study one as as an example, that when you make, um, in this case, when we made participants think about, you know, a positive event that had happened in the past and a sort of negative shameful event in the past and indicate how much they thought that each of these events was important in shaping their identity and who they were now. In mortality salience and indeed the control condition, we saw that people were much more likely to say, hey, you know, these positive events (laughs) are really what, you know, has brought me to where I am now. Um, So they kind of, deep, you know, there was a, sharp difference between the positive and negative events but the death reflection Mm -hmm. condition sort of elevated both of them to the extent there was actually no difference they were saying well both of these events are you know are important and have shaped my identity um, in important ways so and we saw this general pattern of results across you know different studies where we asked them about different values um, that were in conflict or opposing values and we asked them to play different types of computer games that had different conflicting needs Um, so the pattern held and it made me think about the concept of balance so I know that certain theorists have written about this idea that wisdom and obviously Sternberg is a big name in this regard has talked to you know theory of balance the balance theory of wisdom is that it's not just being wise is not just about being wise for yourself um, it's really about trying to balance and integrate the needs of others so the death reflection did start to make me think well maybe if you can broaden people's conceptions um, maybe you can then also make them perhaps incorporate or balance other people's perspectives to a greater degree, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which also made me think about Igor's work about, you know, trying to get people to take the perspective of a fly on the wall or somebody else and see the events, not through an emotional lens that's impacted them, but through uh, an observer's eyes. So I don't know, I could pass back over to to Igor here and ask whether you know, those reflections have any kind of resonance with his work and, and what he's been doing? The best way to do it is to test it, first of all. Of course. <laughs> but uh, that, that's an empirical scientist <laughs> in me, has immediate response. Uh, but um, I, I certainly, when I think about, again, the, the, coming back to those last questions of the reflecting on, on your death and expanding beyond the self, that that would put you on a path of possibly trying to integrate different people, both in your self-concept as well as consider their interests in the first place. It seems very plausible to me that when you start thinking about what the consequences of your death would be to others, that subsequently you would be more likely to see others as almost like part of your self-concept and Mm -hmm. consider their interests to a greater extent. So uh, is that because uh, you're more uh, distant, take a more sort of observer perspective? You kind of have to, right? Like, because you were just presented with a horrible scenario where you are dying. So that's very aversive. So you kind of want to get away from that. Now you were given an output. So like, now think about consequences for your friends. 
So like that puts you sort of like right away in the observer perspective. So I certainly think that connection sounds right to me. So one way, of course, to address that is to test it and to examine if there are then consequences for other forms of uh, balance and integration of different perspectives. And, uh, you know, maybe they use your humility as an outcome variable and other f- features that are often associated with wisdom. Uh, but overall, I agree. Yeah, that's something we've never done, actually, thinking about, you know, we've never done it where you recall like an argument or a conflict that you've Mm -hmm. had with people and see whether, you know, using some of Igor's materials, whether the way you write about that conflict or the strategies that you use to try and solve that conflict um, are kind of more indicative of wise reasoning because they're searching for integration taking the perspective of others um and i yeah i wonder whether that might be a nice little test of it if you could sort of say imagine this conflict (laughs) was unfolding now you know how would you deal with that i'm um yeah so i was Mm -hmm. just going to say that i'm uh, always interested in um running getting ahead of ourselves and saying yeah what what, what this is all well and good what do we actually do (laughs) um so like (laughs) Um, what if people were listening to this and they were saying okay so thinking about death in some ways seems to have negative outputs thinking about it in other ways seems to have positive outputs is there anything we can kind of say that we're fairly sure is is something that like a practice or something people can do or reflect on that would nurture these kind you know perhaps integration within the character or just would lead to more positive outcomes is this something that can be done by normal people in their daily lives? Yeah, I think the evidence that we have so far um, does indicate that if, you know, if you're thinking about mortality mm. and you are finding it threatening and difficult, then you should try and remove it from yourself. And that's coming from different avenues. You know, my work has indicated that those two questions might be key because they get you to think about yourself in a broader perspective. There's the, you know, mortality salience work that's um, showing that if you affirm people's sense of self and give them a sense of worth that this might not threaten them too much so you've perhaps and the normal way they do that is getting them to think about a valued relationship in mm. their lives mm. and Eagle, so again again removing it from the self right? yeah Igor's work is about you know taking a the, the perspective of somebody else the observer so I think the key with these sort of stuff would be to remove remove the kind of the emotion that might be clouding your own judgment and try and think about that from a broader Mm. um, conception. Interesting. That is, we're going to be talking about a wisdom and emotion on our next episode. (laughs) And Laura, have you been reading the script for next week's episode? (laughs) No, but I feel like it's been going well and well. It's, um, well, next week, our our episode or next episode, I don't know if it'll be next week, is called um, Yoda versus Spock. And that's to increase the audience. So anyone who Googles Yoda or Spock will hopefully come to the final episode. But it's about emotion and its role in wisdom. Some people tend to think wisdom is something where you should remove emotion. So you could be um, cool headed. Uh, is that the path to wisdom or is emotion something that we should uh, embrace more and that should feed into taking a wiser decision? So Yoda versus Spock next episode. And we have a special guest, uh, Stefan Cote from the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. He's a specialist in emotional intelligence uh, and similar fields. So we're going to be picking his brain and his heart. Oh, see what I did there? <laughs> and, yeah. Very clever. Yeah. Um, and that's the plan for next week. Uh, Laura, did you have anything else you wanted to add? No, I think we kind of, I've spoken a lot. <laughs> We've covered a lot of, uh, a lot of the take home messages at this point. Yeah, we have. Laura, thank you so much for being our first guest ever and making it really yes. easy for us. And, digging out uh, a headphones set and da- downloading audacity the day before and just you know generally being a legend so thank you very much well, thank you very much for inviting me